I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Hello? Hello? Oh, there you are. Hi, Auntie Merrill. Hi. I wanted to call you because I'm getting ready to record an episode of my podcast that I think I couldn't do it without talking to you. Oh, this is exciting. What is it? We're doing an episode about Barbie. For real? Oh, wow. <laughs> so, first of all, like, how old were you when Barbie came out? Okay, let's see. Barbie came out in 59, so I was four. I just remember playing with Barbies. That was my, my go-to entertainment. So, fast forward to today, Meryl. Uh-huh. Approximately how many Barbie dolls do you own? About 700. But these are newer, special Barbies. I have a lot of one-of-a-kind Barbies. They're really like works of art. What was it about Barbie? Because there were a lot of dolls before Barbie, and there were other dolls around, you know, in the 60s when you were playing with Barbie. But, like, what made Barbie special? She was a grown-up lady. You got to play with a lady. Baby dolls were just boring. But Barbie was a woman, and she wore fancy clothes, and she had different jobs, and she could be a princess, and she could be a nurse. She was a flight attendant. She just did everything. She was so special. What What was your impression of, like, Barbie and food? Did you ever think of her as cooking or being in the kitchen? No, not really. She was too busy working and doing all of her important jobs. I really never thought of Barbie as cooking. Right. Or in the kitchen, or eating. She didn't need food. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. And I'm lucky to have not one, but three Barbie experts in my family. You already heard from my Aunt Meryl. She was born at exactly the right time to become a Barbie obsessive, and she did. And as she said, she never thought of Barbie cooking or eating. Fast forward to today, I wanted to talk Barbie and food with the other two aficionados in my family, my daughters, Becky and Emily, ages 12 and 10. They have perfect recall when it comes to Barbie Life in the Dreamhouse, a 2010s-era addition to the Barbie canon that I gotta say is legit one of the funniest shows on TV. So I asked them, do you ever see Barbie eat? Here's Emily. You do see her eat sometimes. She had like, a huge, huge hot dog, and Ken's like, let me just get like, the silver thing, which I don't really understand why you need like silverware for a hot dog. And so then he like turns his back for a second and then you hear like munching sounds when he comes back. Barbie just has like ketchup on her face but the whole entire big hot dog's gone. (laughs) (laughs) So she did eat a hot dog but you didn't see her eat it. Yeah, Yeah, you just like heard munching. It was meant for two people and she just ate the whole thing in two seconds but kind of was gone. Yeah, you just like heard munching sounds. I think that she seems to like cooking and eating at least in the show that we watched. I don't really know like old Barbies from 1959 or whatever when she first came out. Like, in the shows nowadays, Barbie does seem to do a lot of cooking and eating and enjoys it. They never really made a big deal out of it. It was just, like, part of the 
Like, they never really had a whole episode centered around her eating. It just kind of, like, happened like it was normal. When Barbie's first dream house came out in 1962, it didn't have a kitchen. It was a bachelorette pad. Barbie had shelves full of books, a record player, and a closet full of the latest fashions. She was too busy building her careers by day and going out at night to cook. Since then, Barbie's relationship to cooking and eating has changed a lot. And the ways it's changed tell us something about food culture, body image, and much more. Let's just like begin at the beginning. Like, <laughs> what was your relationship with Barbie growing up? So, you know, she was introduced in 1959, and I was nine years old. And so I never had my own Barbie because, according to my mother, I was too old to play with dolls. This is Helene Siegel. She's a writer based in L.A., and in the 80s and 90s, she worked for Mattel, writing Barbie books for kids, including the Barbie Party Cookbook. But long before that, Helene was growing up in the Bronx when Barbie first hit the scene. Helene may not have had her own Barbies, but she admired Barbie from afar because Barbie was totally different from any doll she'd had. I had baby dolls. You know, we had, like, Betsy Wetsy. They were little chubby dolls, and you were supposed to be the mommy and, you know, put them to bed and blah, blah, blah. And then there was, like, an in-between stage of girls who were maybe almost teenagers, but nobody had breasts, and they were all chubby around the waist. So they were more like girls, and this was a woman. Barbie wasn't just a grown woman. She was also successful and independent. Creation of Ruth Handler who invented her in 1959, and Ruth was not a stay-at-home wife slash mother. She was a businesswoman. So there was a really sharp line, I think, that back then about um, career uh, versus being in the kitchen. And, you know, when we saw all those housewives on TV in the uh, 1950s sitcoms that I grew up with, and they're always, like, wearing high heels, pearls, an apron, and they have a vacuum cleaner in one hand, and they're packing lunches in the other hand. But I think that Mattel or Ruth wanted to make a complete break with that. So when the um, the dream house and the car, I mean, the car looked, it all looked amazing, and it also looked like the future that I wanted for myself. How so? Well, because I knew I would be have a big career. And in the day, that was a little weird, you know. But I knew I'd have a big career and also my dream, you know, like people who grow up in the boroughs, was to live in the city in Manhattan in a penthouse and go out every night and wear a mink stole. In that era, the fact that Barbie owned her own house and car was a big deal. This was at a time when many women in America still couldn't get mortgages or even credit cards without a man to co-sign for them. It was also a big deal that Barbie wasn't married, didn't have kids. Everything she owns is hers alone. Yeah, there's Ken, but as my Aunt Meryl put it, Ken is an accessory. As Helene says... He's eye candy, but who really needs him? Right, right. <laughs> Maybe to carry your luggage. These days I could use someone for that. <laughs> in the 70s, Helene did move to Manhattan, but her job in publishing didn't provide the glamorous life she'd imagined. She lived in a studio apartment instead of a penthouse, and there were no mink stoles in her closet. Eventually, she ended up in California. While there wasn't much of a publishing industry there, there was a lot of good food. So Helene got into cookbook writing. This was the 80s now, right at the beginning of the first wave of celebrity chefs, which included the California chef Wolfgang Puck. Helene Ghosh wrote a cookbook for him, among other chefs in the area. But it wasn't always steady work. Every once in a while, because I was a freelancer, I would like, well, I wouldn't get another gig, and I would freak out, so I would take a job. 
One of those non-cookbook jobs was at Mattel. They hired Helene to oversee a series of Barbie storybooks for girls. Now, the images in these books weren't illustrations. They were photos of actual Barbie dolls, elaborately staged in miniature scenes. Mattel had designers who would make beautiful, tiny, special occasion dresses and a whole team of hairstylists. So you go into a room and you see a lot of heads just on sticks. And then he could open these sliding drawers where there were heads. I mean, just a wide variety. They're all Barbie heads, but maybe different skin tones and a million hairstyles that they had done in the past. But, you know, they did custom hairstyles. Like for our shoot, they would make custom wigs. It was cool. In one book, Helene remembers in particular, Barbie was an astronaut. They put her in a spacesuit. They thought it'd be cute to have her hair standing on end in the photos, you know, because she's in space, zero gravity. But when Mattel saw the photos, they weren't happy. And they were like, you know, what are you thinking? First of all, reshoot this. And let me tell you something. That girl's bangs never come off her forehead. (laughs) So we don't care what's happening, but you keep them down. (laughs) In addition to showing Barbie in the proper light, Helene says she and her team also had to get the hang of writing in Barbie's voice. One of the keys is there's never a depressing day for Barbie. (laughs) And you know what? That was what I liked. My life wasn't like that. But whenever I slip into Barbie, it's just, um, you know, she's happy because everything turns out well for Barbie. There's never a problem she can't solve. And, I mean, I think the the writers who had the hardest time getting the voice were the people who probed too deeply and thought too much. Helene says Mattel paid her well, and she enjoyed working with Barbie. But some of her friends felt otherwise. My friends, as you could imagine, they're very, um, I don't know, they're very lefties and, well, they're granola eaters. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I literally had my women friends like raising their eyebrows like, how can you work for her? <laughs> how can you work for Barbie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because first of all, they were raising their daughters to not play with Barbie. They were judgmental. I think about the whole messaging, which, you know, the very serious feminists wrote these treatises about the bad body image, the body image, obviously, of thinness and bustiness and um, what will happen to your daughter if she plays with these dolls kind of thing. So it was just like, she's a bad influence on the children. (laughs) You know, why are you doing that? Helene considers herself a feminist, but among feminists in the 80s, there was a growing fault line. On one side were women like Helene, who admired Barbie for her careers and her independence. On the other side were women who didn't see that as groundbreaking anymore. By this time, a lot of women had careers, and a lot of career women were also moms. It wasn't one or the other. The women on this side of the debate critiqued Barbie for perpetuating unrealistic beauty standards. They thought Barbie would create issues with body image or disordered eating for their daughters. And they pointed to a 1965 doll, Slumber Party Barbie, as proof. This Barbie came with a scale that was permanently set to 110 pounds and a miniature book titled How to Lose Weight. Inside, there were just two words, don't eat. And while Mattel hadn't done anything remotely so egregious since then, by the 80s, critics were saying they were still promoting this idea implicitly just because of what Barbie looks like. More recently, researchers have shown that if a real woman with her proportions existed, her waist would be about 19 inches. In discussing this issue, both Helene and my Aunt Meryl said that even as kids, they never felt like they were supposed to look like Barbie. They understood she was just a doll. And that idea isn't limited to women of their generation. 
I asked my daughters what they thought about Barbie's body. Well, she's made out of plastic. She's a doll. You can't judge her on her body. She's not a real person. Yeah, plastic can't get, like, bigger or smaller. Regardless of Mattel's intent or how girls interpreted Barbie's body, it's a fact that for decades after Barbie was introduced, Mattel resisted putting her around food or in the kitchen. Helene remembers in the 80s pitching a story for one of those Barbie kids' books. She wanted to base it on Mrs. Fields, the cookie entrepreneur. Mrs. Fields was a real person who had built an extremely successful business. Helene wanted to fictionalize that story. It was like a perfect Barbie story. And not only that, Mrs. Field was very pretty, and she kind of looked like a Barbie with brown hair. And so I wanted her to be a little home baker, and then she opens a bake shop and blah, blah, blah. And they killed the story. It's the only story that got killed because of this executive decree that she will never get her hands dirty. They literally told me that Barbie would never get dirty. She would never dirty her hands. She will never sweep. She will never wash a pot. So she won't do anything, but they were so strict then. Anything around food was really a no-go. In 1991, Mattel's position on Barbie and food started to change. They weren't ready to let Barbie cook, but they did want her to be cooking adjacent, in the form of a Barbie cookbook. They asked Helene to ghostwrite it. The final product is called the Barbie Party Cookbook. This is the idea, like a children's cookbook for girls who are having a party, a slumber party, a birthday party, a Christmas party. You know, they're good recipes, I will say, because I did that. (laughs) But they're simple, and Barbie is never cooking, and she's never talking about food. And so what is Barbie's role in the book? Well, let's put it this way. She is definitely on the cover. Because <laughs> Barbie sells books, and she's brilliantly pink. Like, the art direction for this book is so over-the-top and crazy. Elaborate hair. I'm looking at it. She's in evening garb. To have, she's doing a garden tea party, and she's wearing, like, a sort of Joan Collins purple, you know, strapless mini dress with veil and puffy sleeves. So, you know, she's there as a picture. But her voice, she does not write the recipes. It's not coming from her. In fact, the recipes came from Helene. My recipes, I based it on stuff I would make with my children. You know, they're easy, but they're really good. I mean, just teaching kids how to make real chocolate, you know, hot fudge sauce. Right. Um, There's a few recipes I'm really proud of. When I look back, there's an Italian ices, what we used to call granita when I was a foodie. Oh, right. Then that's still what they call it in Italy. And we're doing Italian cookbooks, you know? Yeah. And you would make it, I mean, it's so easy because it's lemon juice, water, and sugar. And you just put it in a pan and you just keep scraping it in the freezer. And so I felt like if I made a contribution, you know, to all of America— was that they could make granita, a.k.a. lemon ices. The same year the Barbie Party Cookbook came out, Mattel also released its first Barbie chef outfit. It was part of the Cool Careers series. The outfit included a pink lace apron and chef's hat. So what happened to bring about this change? Well, I think, you know, everything changed regarding food in America. Uh, With Food TV, everything exploded. At the same time that Barbie was dipping her toe into the kitchen, Execs elsewhere were laying the groundwork for America's first all-food and cooking TV channel. Food Network would launch two years later. In the decades that followed, Mattel introduced 12 different Barbie chefs, from Pizza Chef Barbie to Pancake Chef Barbie 
TV chef Barbie. Barbie is a hot chef on TV, making food as good as it can be. And now, there's your show, there's food bloggers. But um, back in the day, like when she was introduced, the interest in food culture was really for the elite. It wasn't for the masses. And remember, Barbie's for the masses. So what you're saying is that the job of chef in the past few decades has become glamorous. Well, it's become glamorous, and it's also become attainable and popularized. So now for a young woman to aspire to be a pastry chef is cool, right? I mean, to own your own cupcake shop. And so it's something that parents um, love. In fact, I read some of the reviews online of the product, the pastry chef product, and parents said, oh, my little girl loves this because she wants to be a pastry chef when she grows up. It's a real different world. Yeah, and the other thing that happened is that that it used to be that sort of women cooked in the home and men cooked in restaurants, and that's obviously changed. That's true. And now women are also celebrity chefs. Yes. And so that change opened the door for Mattel to to say like, okay, now now this is a glamorous career. You know, Barbie before she was an astronaut, or you know, n- now she can be a chef. Uh, and so they changed their as the culture changed, their the rules around the doll changed. That's right. I got to look around. Hang on. I'm, I'm getting up for one second, Helene. I want to see if I can okay. find Because I have I have a, a newer Barbie cookbook here that my daughter and I have cooked from. Let me see if I can find it. I should have had it ready. Let me see. In 2020, a new Barbie cookbook came out, nearly 30 years after Helene's Barbie cookbook. And this newer one is very different. Here it is. All right, so I've got Barbie Bakes, 50-plus fantastic uh, recipes from Barbie and her friends. Right. Barbie is on the cover holding a pie and um, <laughs> with oven mitts on. So she, she has oven She mitts. seems to be the one who took the pie out of the oven, which suggests she is cooking. I'm very proud of her. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my daughter has put Post-it notes on all the things that she wants to make. Oh, that's to cute. To me, my— my biggest criticism of this book was that the recipes seem very complicated. Like they're, oh, they're, really? they're very elaborate. No. It's like I mean, they look they look gorgeous, but it's like not anything that I'm going to spend. Right. And there's no time estimates on the recipe. I'm, I, I, my daughter looked through these things and she's like, "Let's make this." Like they all look amazing, you know. But it's like, like these. You know, you got a cupcake with like four different colors in the frosting, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they're somehow piped on top to make a perfect swirl like i don't know how to do that no well that sounds like um barbie's making me feel bad helene i can't cook like she can (laughs) she shouldn't and she shouldn't be judging she'd never be (laughs) judging (laughs) i don't think food has ever been a priority for barbie right you know what i mean it's just that it's a big thing in the culture now but my hunch is that she does not eat a lot like we never have her eating in any of our stories you know, it's not like, oh, and then I sat down with my friends, my best friends, and we gorged ourselves on ice cream. Right. Like, no, that is not part of this perfect universe. That's Helene Siegel. Her blog is called The Pastry Sessions. It's got recipes for children and adults. And she also writes a column for the Jewish Journal on food, travel, and aging. Coming up, I get about as close to entering a real-life dream house as possible when I go to the pop-up Malibu Barbie Cafe in New York. I'll dine there with food writer Helen Rosner, and we'll debate whether a breakfast burrito is Barbie food. Stick around. And now, a delicious word from our sponsors. Mm -mm, It's very good. 
In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, like, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line, they take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn Best Buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feel great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer... 
Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman, and I have some big pasta news to share. As of this month, Spolini's Cascatelli is now in Whole Foods nationwide. And remember, it's also in a lot of Walmart locations, so you can now get it there, too. On top of that, more news. Our newer shapes, Quattrotini and Vesuvia, are now in the Fresh Market. That's 170 locations across the whole eastern half of the U.S. And Quattrotini and Vesuvia are also in all locations of Texas's own Central Market. Of course, you can always get all my shapes, including the variety pack, direct from Sfolini at Sfolini.com. So go get your pasta. Okay, back to Barbie. I I love that we're the only two people who wore black to the Barbie pop-up. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a good memoir title. (laughs) (laughs) This is Helen Rosner, food writer at The New Yorker. We met at the pop-up Malibu Barbie Cafe in New York City on a recent Thursday morning. The way it works at the cafe is that when you make your reservation, you also order your food. You pick one entree and one side. Did you know we put in exactly the same order? You're joking. No, I, um, when I emailed my order, I said, and if Dan happens to be getting the same things, here's my backup order. And she replied, she was like, Dan ordered exactly the same order. <laughs> I invited Helen not just because she has impeccable taste in food ordering, but also because I wanted her to train her critical eye on the cafe, the food, and the whole idea of Barbie. So just look around, Helen. Uh, set the scene for us. What, what, what do you see? What captures your attention? Well, we're in a, a very sort of sunlight-filled space that has been painted in bright magenta and turquoise. And it's really decked out in a, in a Barbie surf vibe. It's a, an Instagram opportunity with a meal included. Right. Um, and the crowd is really interesting. There are, I think, as you would expect, a lot of young girls, most of whom are wearing various shades of pink, but there's a surprising number of adults in here, uh, ch- childless adults. Y- yes. There might actually be a first date happening over at the bar. Oh, my God. Do you see that? But it's cool. Um, oh, my God. Oh, wow. Oh, this woman just walked by wearing the coolest outfit. She's like a, a light pink top and a long magenta skirt and these shoes that look like butterflies. She's a real-life Barbie. Look at her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, things are already coming. Thank you. So this is beet hummus, okay? Nice and pink. We started in on the beet hummus. It was fine. We gave it points for being a naturally pink food. We waited for the rest of our meal. A club sandwich, breakfast burrito, wedge salad, fries, and steamed broccoli. I mean, my expectations of the food coming in were admittedly low, so... They can only impress me. What was your relationship with Barbie growing up? Covetous, obsessive. Um, I had a, I had a few Barbies. I didn't have nearly as many as I wanted. Um, the other really powerful Barbie memory for me is the Barbie aisle at the toy store. It was a, a tunnel of pink. You know, and imagine being three feet tall and walking through this, what feels to you like a cathedral of tiny, flawless women wearing the most extraordinary outfits you've ever seen in your lives. Anytime we would go to the toy store to pick up a present for a friend's birthday party or whatever it was, 
I would ask to go through the Barbie aisle and I would look at them like I was in a museum. It was just incredible. Like the, even as a chubby kid, I don't think I ever had that sense that I was supposed to look like Barbie. It was very fantastical. It was a form of deeply covetous, deeply capitalistic, incredibly joyous feminine fantasy. Um, and it's still totally there. Our food's here. Breakfast burrito, wedge salad. Thank you. I love um, a wedge salad. I know you do. That's why I ordered it. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. I feel so seen. Well, let's dig in here. Oh, these are good fries. They taste like McDonald's. They have that They have that crisp. I feel like the salt level and the fryer oil composition, that is a McDonald's fry. Mm. Do you taste that? But they're, but they're a little more over, they're a little more done. Yeah, they're, 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 they're more, more they're a more deep golden brown. Yeah. If you were going to buy fries at McDonald's and then take them back to another restaurant and refry them, this is what you would get. <laughs> kind of genius. This is really good. Some of these things feel more feel like they go with the idea of Barbie more than others. The Tell the, me more, the, yeah. the pink beet hummus, I get it. The wedge salad, I get it. Even the club sandwich, like it feels like I could see Barbie being at a country club and ordering a club sandwich. Huh. I don't know how many. Mammoth, bacon, egg, and cheese, and avocado breakfast burritos Barbie's going to house. I think what you're running into is a really interesting distinction between Barbie the brand and Barbie the person. So for me, a breakfast burrito makes a lot of sense with who Barbie is because she's a California surfer girl. And a breakfast burrito to me is in many ways the ultimate California surfer food, right? So Barbie eats a breakfast burrito. But... Barbie doesn't eat pink food that says Barbie on it. Barbie eats California surfer girl food. So the pink hummus on the table, that's not Barbie eating that pink hummus. That's us eating Barbie. But the breakfast burrito, this is what Barbie eats. All right, let's try this breakfast burrito. What do you think this mysterious pink is? You see that? Yes, it's a little tiny pink dot inside the breakfast burrito. I'm going to guess that that's a sprinkle from the pancakes. Yes. That fell in and dissolved. It's in my scrambled eggs. Yeah. I love it. I think that's exactly the kind of fortuitous and exciting (laughs) thing that happens in Barbie's life. (laughs) That's fun. I happen to be a sucker for anything wrapped in a flour tortilla. Oh, yeah. Um, But this is good. It's, like, surprisingly good. It's interesting to me that 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 you feel like Barbie, the person, would eat a breakfast burrito. And I, I, I understand your, I think your, your logic makes a lot of sense. But one of the things that I've been contemplating and, and in talking to other folks is like, so there was this moment you know, when, when being a chef became glamorous, mm-hmm. then it was okay for her to, to be in the kitchen when, when it was a career. But they still, even, even then, were very careful about showing her eating. I actually quizzed my kids because they're avid viewers of Barbie Life in the Dreamhouse. So they said they do sometimes, the Barbie does eat in that show. Okay. But from what I understand, it, it's still even more recent. It took a long time and only very recently that Barbie was allowed to be depicted eating. Huh. So do we think that this is a body image thing, a domesticity thing, a Barbie isn't allowed to get dirty thing, or something else? The easy answer is that Barbie is famously very slender, and we have to acknowledge that one of the ways that you can get and remain that way is by never being seen eating. <laughs> but that's a little disordered. So I don't know. What do you think? 
it's hard for me to imagine that some people sat in a boardroom and said that. Said, like, we can't have her eating because she has to be... It has to be narratively plausible that right, she's this right. thin. Right. I, I mean, I, I think that the, the, the part of Barbie that, to me, feels a little more potentially worrisome... Because a lot of women I've talked to, including from my kids up to my 60-something-year-old aunt who has a 700 Barbie collection of 700 Barbies. Oh, my dream. Said, she's plastic. We never thought we were supposed to look like that. Yeah. But there's the, the other thing is that, like, in, in all other respects, Barbie is also always perfect. Yeah. Maybe it's less about body image, but it's more about, like, eating is something that real people do. Yeah. And it's, kind of, and it, it's sometimes messy. We don't always look our best when we're shoving food in our faces. Like, there's not medical school Barbie. There's just doctor Barbie. You know, you don't see the Barbie who's, like, worked a 24-hour on-call and has been cramming for the MCATs and has been doing whatever. You see Barbie when she is in the most poised, professional, in-control, structurally and aesthetically perfect mode of her life. Right. And so I think that them not wanting to show her eating is more about maintaining that. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I think it's it's totally possible that there is an element of insidiousness to it, but I don't know. It seems a little far-fetched to me. Then came the crown jewel of the meal. Dessert. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is fantastic. This is the ice cream float. It's, it's, it's literally a, paint, a plastic pink car, like a Barbie mobile, and in the driver's seat is a glass jar of Haritos strawberry soda, and in the passenger seat is a big glass full of vanilla ice cream. This is, they're on a date. <laughs> they're going to make out at Lookout Point. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm going to make them kiss, like classic Barbie style. <laughs> Ready? Every, every kid who's owned a Barbie knows how to make the Barbies kiss. Wow. I mean, really, if I were probably making them It's not even noon, snack. Helen. Take it easy. Well, I'm not making them do you know what. <laughs> That's a full smash. <laughs> I poured the strawberry Haritos over the ice cream, and we went in for a taste. Mm. Oh, my God. That is strawberry soda poured over vanilla ice cream. <laughs> I mean, first of all, like it, it's serving some real Nestle quick, strawberry quick vibes, yeah. which I love. This is pure childhood. I, I also have to say, I feel like of all the dishes we've had here, an ice cream float feels to me like just absolute perfect for Barbie. And I feel like it's, it's, it's a dessert that unites both Barbie the brand and Barbie the person. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. This is really awakening, like, childhood stuff in me right now, playing with this car. <laughs> I never got to have any of the larger Barbie accessories. I just had the dolls and the clothes. Right. And, of course, I coveted a dream house or coveted the Barbie mobile. I might cry. This is a big moment for me. <laughs> I really love the car. Helen's hugging the car. I'm hugging the car. But, like, sincerely. I need to talk about this in therapy. <laughs> well, Helen, excuse me while I finish this ice cream float. <laughs> <laughs> That's Helen Rosner. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can follow her on Instagram, where she has a link to all her writing. She's at Helen R. The Malibu Barbie Cafe is open until September 15th. It's located in the South Street Seaport in Manhattan. And there's another pop-up cafe in Chicago that also closes then. Next week on the show, I talk with indigenous poet Tommy Pico about learning to cook so he can make his own new food culture. We also talk about his love of junk food, and he reads some of his poetry. That's next week. 
While you're waiting for that one, don't miss last week's episode all about ice cubes. I talked with the guy who pioneered a way to make crystal clear ice. Plus, we break down Starbucks' recent announcement that they're changing their ice cubes. There's a lot going on in the world of ice right now. Ice is hot. We're covering it all on The Sporkful. That one's up now. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producer... Andres O'Hara. Editing by... Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is... Jared O'Connell. Special thanks to Abby Aguilar, Nia Maddie, and Alex Gonzalez for their studio help. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Alexis Ruff from Burbank, California. Reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. 